0: My name is Rick Kleffel, and you're listening to the Agony Column on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. With me in the studio is Juliet Eilprin. She's the national environmental reporter for The Washington Post. She's the author of Fight Club Politics, How Partisanship is Poisoning the House of Representatives. Mission accomplished. Her new book is Demon Fish Travels Through the Hidden World of Sharks. Thank you for joining me, Juliet.
1: Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Juliet, this is a really interesting book about sharks because it's about as much about people as it is about sharks and about our relationship with sharks. And it's there's a lot more to it than just getting eaten.
1: Right, and that's really what I set out to to do, although I'm interested in natural history, and I was, of course, I I do want people to understand things about sharks and how they operate. But I really wanted to explore why we have this really unique relationship with sharks and what it tells us both about the ocean and how it works, but also about ourselves.
0: Well, you know... um, What's interesting is that sharks have made this journey in human culture from being gods to food. That's a... (laughs) not, Not many... Not even humans make that journey.
1: An unlikely trajectory and one that was really interesting to look at. You know, I really, you know, I think many of us th- think that, you know, we think of the of the Jaws ideas and, and kind of this, you know, our our fear of them and things like that. And so what I really wanted to look at, how has this relationship changed across time and across culture? And it really is a lot more complicated and nuanced than you might expect. Now,
0: you start us out in a place called the Shark Lab. What a cool place. How did you find that? Talk about visiting that and setting up that visit, and tell us a little bit about what it's like in the Shark Lab. Sure
1: thing. So what's interesting is I started covering the environment for the Washington Post in 2004, and about a year later, I had actually been been talking with some researchers, and one of them said, look, you know... I, I'm going down to this place called the Shark Lab where where people study sharks full time off uh, in the Bahamas, off Bimini. And, and why don't you come along with me? It's not it's not that expensive. And, you know, you can go for just a few days. And, and well, at first I said, you know, to this researcher, Ellen Pickett, you're serious? You, you're you asking me to get in the water with sharks? I You know, she was persuasive, so I decided to go down there. And it's incredible. It's this, this place that's been going on for years. Sonny Gruber is the head researcher uh, out of the University of Miami there. And he looks at lemon sharks and kind of what's going on with them. And they're young people from all around the world who rotate in and out. And so we got down there, and then they said, we're going off to Triangle Rocks. You're going to get in the water. They threw some bloody barracuda uh, in there to, of course, bring together all these reef sharks that were that were eager to eat them. And, you know, against my better judgment, I, I slipped right in. I had my snorkeling mask and, and my gear and and entered for the first time the world of sharks and that was really the moment that I realized this is something I wanted to explore.
0: You know, one of the things you you talk about uh right up front and I have to mention this because we when we think of sharks we think of, of you know, jaws and these enormous triangle-shaped teeth. But sharks are covered with teeth. <laughs>
1: It is true. They have denticles, skin teeth, uh, which is part of the reason that they can move so swiftly through the water. It's this incredible, it's also the reason why, if you have shark skin that you're, that you're touching, for example, it's smooth in one direction and like sandpaper in the other. But it's this incredible aerodynamic tool that they use. And, and you know, it's, it's part of what makes shark sharks. But they're not fish, are they? Well, actually, sharks are fish, but they're cartilaginous fish rather than bony fish. So they're part of the, you know they're they're part of the same grouping. But what's unusual about sharks, and this also applies to, to rays and chimeras, is that instead of having the bony skeleton that we really associate with fish, they have cartilage, which is one of the reasons they're so prized for food in Asia.
0: Now, uh, one of the things you you talk about is that obviously we're frightened of sharks i mean that's that's uh, certainly true but actually the reverse is much more the case they they don't pose much of a threat to us unless we act really stupid and and we'll get to the photographer the (laughs) ill-advised photographer sometime during our conversation but uh we're really a threat to sharks aren't we
1: Right. So what we've seen is, you know, to to put it in in context between four and five people each year worldwide die in an unprovoked shark strike. Uh, But by contrast, because of both deliberate fishing of sharks and unintentional accidental catch of sharks, you're killing tens of millions of sharks each year. While they're they're really big, the estimates is a pretty wide range. But for example, for the shark fin trade, which is, is sharks being targeted particularly for the fins that can be used to create noodles in an Asian delicacy called shark's fin soup. You're talking about between 26 million and 73 million sharks a year. So there's just no question that there's a huge number of sharks that are being killed by humans compared to a tiny fraction of humans being killed by sharks.
0: Now, you you find yourself at the lab in the water with these sharks <laughs> and not being nibbled on and you think, well, maybe it'd be a good idea to, to take a look at, at sharks. So talk about, you know, uh, coming up with the once you had this kind of uh, the idea for the book, talk about you know setting up the travel and figuring out the 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 uh, structure of the book because it's really well you know architected and written. And I'm just curious about you know here you are as a writer, how do you go about uh, putting together a book like this?
1: Well, I have to say that it was actually it was quite a challenge. It wasn't you know it's it's funny you referred to my my first book which is about political polarization in Washington. I knew exactly what I wanted to write when I started out. I had been covering Congress for years and. I had a sense of why the political system was screwed up and I sat down and <laughs> talked to a lot of people I already knew and, and was able to do that pretty quickly with this one it really was an act of exploration where what I did at first was primarily contact a number of scientists who I knew who were all throughout the world and said you know I'd contact a researcher in Hong Kong and one in Indonesia and, and ones in I went to say aquariums like the Monterey Bay Aquarium the, those folks were instrumental in guiding me towards people I could talk to in Mexico about what was happening there in terms of research. So it was interesting. I I basically reached out to a number of people and kind of was looking to piece together a global picture of what was happening with sharks, both in terms of scientific discovery as well as popular culture. You know, I went to the Library of Congress. I was looking historically at what was going on. And it, it took me a while to come up with the architecture that I had, this idea of looking at how have we looked at them historically? How has that changed over time? What are we discovering about them through science? And what are we realizing about the threats to sharks and the implications for that globally?
0: You know, you, you begin with this really great, Piece said in Papua New Guinea, New Ireland. Who knew there was a New Ireland in Papua New Guinea? Exactly. <laughs> and, and who might have ever guessed that there would be such a a calling as a shark calling?
1: Right. And so that's really interesting. That was actually in some ways an accidental discovery, which is I both had met the UN ambassador from Papua New Guinea through my coverage of international climate negotiations, as well as as a woman who works uh, in Washington, who's a longtime Papua New Guinean diplomat uh, named Meg Taylor. And I I went to both of them and was talking to them about this and learned about this ritual, which is that one of the few existing faith traditions that that is still present are these men in a a tiny area in New Ireland who perform rituals and go out to sea to catch sharks individually, engage in man-to-shark combat... And bring bring them back, but also use it as a way to communicate with their ancestors and really understand the world as it exists. And you know, it's a really fascinating subculture that that still thrives.
0: Well, this is, what's interesting about this to me is that this is a a relic of man's ancient and um, first uh, relationship with sharks. For for the Papua New Guineas, sharks are literally gods. These people, you know, in a sense, worship the sharks. So talk about this. You know, the creation story and how the religious legend, uh, you know, d- does lead up all the way up the food chain to, you know, the worst aspects of Modern commercial
1: science, right, so really, uh, you know what, what you see is that and, and what's really interesting about being in Papua New Guinea is this is a place where you still have Christian missionaries today. you know there are people who have been very focused on converting these villagers to Christianity, yet they have this faith tradition where they have a god called Mora, who in many ways is very similar to a Christian god, but where they they have this idea that they' created all these different uh, you know animals and as well as humans. And they created the the shark, and uh, and in fact the shark was impatient and kind of slipped away from Moroa as he was kind of trying to warn him. By the way, you might get caught and things like that. But so you know, the shark went into the waters. And as a result, the Papua New Guineans had this idea that sharks are these incredible creatures who are are connected to their own creation and are connected to their ancestors. And so, you know, what they do is they have kind of this very specialized class of people who in many ways, it's it's not exactly as if they're a priest, but that they are the ones who can connect ordinary villagers to the supernatural aspect of the sea. And they're, you know, they they pass it down, they train it. And, and you know, so that's the way they do it. And what's so interesting is that, you know, for years and years and years, they, they did this and in some ways did it in defiance of being, uh, you know, occupied and, and being converted. And so they still do it. But now what's happened is there's such a demand for shark fins that even though they are still going out and practicing their rituals, they're now part of this global shark fin trade. And they're in fact taking, you know, taking what they catch and taking the fins and selling it on on the Asian market because that's how they can make the most money.
0: Now you actually did you go on one of these t- journeys with, with, the, with, I, with the with the master? Or I did,
1: what? I did. I was in a separate because they go on an individual canoe, so I uh-huh. went out in a separate canoe and watched him as he performed this uh, performed this ritual. Uh, although you know, women Kara are Simbi is that his name? It's Salam Karasimbe, exactly. And uh, but one of the interesting things is they say that women are really bad luck when you're doing shark calling. And for whatever reason, we did not we did not catch a shark the day we went out.
0: <laughs> well, I guess maybe there as they say, there's always a core of uh, truth to these ancient (laughs) beliefs. There you go. Now, uh, once you, um, you you then take us back, and and one of the things that's interesting is when you take us back to, you know, the history of sharks, the ancient history of sharks, and what struck me really strongly when I read this was that what you point out is that what killed the dinosaurs did not kill the sharks.
1: Yeah, it's incredible when you consider that they go back 400 million years uh, and so predate dinosaurs by a couple hundred million. And, and, you know, just that they are such extraordinary predators and have evolved so well in terms of what they do that they've been able to stick around. I mean, it's just really amazing when you think, you know, the reason why we, you know, have discovered, say, for example, fossilized shark teeth in Montana is that was the point when, when the sea covered Montana. I mean, it's incredible to think of just the unique role they play in our planet and you know given how their longevity
0: well i used to take the boys up to scott's valley just up the hills there and you and and find uh shark's teeth in the cliff there too so <laughs> <laughs> there
1: you go i mean They have that global distribution, which is amazing.
0: Now, there's a a long history of, of, you know, man's relationships with sharks and all different cultures have had relationships with sharks. You talk about the aborigines. I mean, that's a really interesting. uh,
1: Yeah. In Australia, they have, you know, they have basically a a long, a a long mythical tradition also involving sharks and in in fact even have have hand symbols that involve when they're referring to stingrays and and you know again what's really interesting is is in many ways it's the particularly these ancient cultures that had a closer connection to the sea that have a a more nuanced view of sharks and kind of see them as having both positive and negative aspects and and really occupying a place in their worldview, whereas the interesting thing about, in many ways, in the modern Western world, is they're seen as so alien and simply as threats that we don't really understand how how we might be connected to them.
0: It seems to me that having you know, when you read the whole book, it, one of the takeaways I think is that the earliest cultures, and these people in Papua New Guinea, for example, have a very uh, a similar very similar protect, uh, perception of sharks as do the people the cutting edge conservationists uh, here in the United States the people who are trying to keep the sharks from going extinct.
1: Right. I mean that's really interesting you have kind of these unusual alliances that you wouldn't think about but it's really because when you think of the people who are are, are really have a much more holistic view of you know what's happening in the ocean and how their lives are connected to the sea. I mean I think that's one of the interesting things when I went across the you know world and I was talking to these people. For example, I talked to a Mexican shark fisherman who has now stopped doing that and is now trying to promote ecotourism as a way of uh, of preserving sharks. And, you know, he he understands what sharks do and why they might matter, whereas I think people who are really removed for it don't have that. But interestingly, there are people, whether you're time at the Niger Delta or Papua New Guinea or again, you know, in a- areas in Australia where they have a better sense of why sharks might play play a role that they should care about
0: well too one of the things that's interesting in this book I think you do a great job of, of bringing out the history of sharks and, and the history of our perceptions of them so mm-hmm. at first you know we really didn't know what they were they were like sea monsters
1: <laughs> right and that's a, it's, a, it's actually it's a great it's a great term and it really describes you know when you look at you know for example whether it's the Greek poet Oppian and how he's describing Katia in poetry which is kind of a shark-like creature that's has a insatiable uh, uh, thirst for, and desire to consume people. Or, or, you know, if you look at the Mayan, uh, there's a Mayan figure called shock, which is a demon that that uh, devoured women and children or even in Iraq, there's a 12th century description of, of basically this, this sea monster that exactly people really didn't quite know what was going on. And so to them, sharks were the enemy.
0: And they were certainly the enemy to the whalers, too.
1: Right. And so really, I think part of it, when you look at, at our kind of contentious mm-hmm. and tortured relationship with sharks, if you look at seafaring, whether you're talking about, you know, whalers in terms of their logs, where either it's, I, I love it because they're either, they're generally upset either if they go out and they're looking for a whale and all they have is do, dogfish, a kind of shark. They say, you know, dogfish plagues us much because, you know, here they're they're, they're going after the big whale and all they're finding is sharks or tons of seafaring who write about being terrified at falling into the sea and being subject to a shark strike. So that certainly happens.
0: Well, you know, um, it's so interesting that um, we... This uh, idea of the the Romans coined the term dogfish, didn't they? That it's been around for a long time.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, what w- that's one of the really interesting things. It's it's um, Pliny the Elder was the one who who's responsible for dogfish, and we still talk about. It while it there, it was universal. Um, now, now it refers to individual species, but it's yeah, it's very interesting and, and partially. Uh, Presumably, certainly when Aristotle was describing it, he was comparing their behavior to dogs and kind of the biting and particularly when they were in the midst of actually uh, uh, having sex. And so it's just interesting to think about how there are these terms that that live on for centuries.
0: Now, uh, are uh Contentious, as you put it, uh, yeah. relationship with with sharks really stems, and this is so so interesting. From essentially one incident, it, it's you know there's one inception point, and that's summer of 1916. Not a good not a good summer for swimmers, was it?
1: Exactly. You know, right at the moment when going to the beach was becoming a popular pastime, you had a series of shark attacks off the New Jersey shore. Four people died within the course of 12 days. And interestingly, if you look at, for example, news accounts. Shortly before this, there's a depiction of sharks, not as this terrible enemy, but, you know, just kind of a a creature that's out there. But when you did have four people die within that short period of time, that was the moment when Americans became terrified and thought that there were these rogue rogue sharks that were out there in the water intentionally targeting humans and that everyone could be at risk.
0: And then there's, of course you can't write a book about <laughs> sharks without talking about uh, Peter Benchley and Steven Spielberg and Bruce
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly so Bruce which is I, I note that it, it's interesting when you look at the connection between lawyers and sharks um, it's interesting this terminology uh, materialized uh, right in the er, early 1800s in 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 Britain but really <laughs> yeah exactly I to. I'm pretty sure it was 1806 if I got that right but that's certainly a you know a period where where they started talking about uh, lawyers as sharks. And so the mechanical shark he used um, in Jaws was called Bruce for Steven Spielberg's lawyer. So a little, you know, inside joke there. But that really was with both the book in 1974 and, of course, the blockbuster in 75 that, you know, you really had this global terror of sharks w- with the idea that, again, anyone could be vulnerable when they go into the water.
0: And, and that has fueled uh, a kind of uh, fishing and, you know, a, a, an attitude on the part of americans and consumers and people around the world Mm -hmm. essentially that is really doing great damage to the shark population, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So what happened is essentially the idea is if they're after us, we can go after them. And so what you have is a really robust recreational fishing culture, which exists both on the, on the West Coast uh, as well as the East Coast. And for example, roughly 200,000 sharks each year are killed just by recreational anglers going after them um, to say nothing of industrial fishing. So it's really a pretty s- significant impact.
0: You talk about a man, uh, uh, the shark man, uh, Mark Cortiano.
1: Exactly. Mark the shark. Mark the shark. And (laughs) so he's a commercial fishing boat operator off Miami Beach. And he really plays into the macho desire to contest the shark. He just, that's his bread and butter. It's whether he's taking a celebrity or a guy who's on a bachelor party. He really plays up this whole idea of, come on, you know, beat up the shark and, and you're more of a man for doing it. Well, did you go out in the boat with him? I went out with him a couple of times with different groups. Did you catch
0: him? Did you cat? Were you fishing?
1: I was not fishing. Oh. I was not fishing. I was observing <laughs> what was going on.
0: Well, did they bring in some sharks? But,
1: but each time I went out with him, they did. They ca- they caught a couple big sharks. Um, so yeah, there's no question. He knows he knows where to go and the right times of uh, the right times of year, and so he generally delivers for his clients
0: and his clients are are, are just it, it is kind of this macho thing he he really wants to kill the sharks he wants to kill new species too it's, he's, yeah, a, he's an interesting fellow yeah he's
1: really interesting and it's fascinating because I, I what I find really interesting is that I, I sent him I warned him the whole time I was doing it I said look I'm a journalist I'm going to write this up I'm not going to sh- tell you how it, how it turns out I sent him the book and he said he loves it which I find really interesting <laughs> because I think anyone who reads it might you know might take away something different but you know to him him. He loves just this image. And he right now there's actually uh, a measure that the Florida Wildlife Commission is considering to restrict the number of shark species to being caught. For example, hammerheads and tiger sharks. And he's fighting it. He's fighting it in the press. You know, that's going to affect his livelihood if there's a, if there are further restrictions on what kind of sharks he can catch.
0: Well, one of the things I think you do really well throughout this book is you—you you have a very even-handed approach. So when you show us Mark Cortiano, Mark the Shark, yeah. you know we kind of get him, and you know while we may find his his views and his attitude somewhat reprehensible in some way uh, or irresponsible. Um, he doesn't come off badly. We, we kind of like him. And I, I really like that about this book that you seem to go out there and really embrace the whole world of all this stuff with the exception of the shark fin industry. You're not a shark fin soup fan, are you?
1: <laughs> no, I can't I I can't say that I'm a, a big fan of that. I think you're right. I really do try to get inside the head of all all the different folks that I'm I'm talking to to give really, you know, readers the chance to decide what they think about it. But, you know, what I found so interesting is is, you know, there's this huge multi-million dollar trade all focused on this idea of these tiny little noodles that'll be in a bowl of soup which are actually flavorless which don't really add anything to the dish and it's all about status and all about prestige and you know there there is a moment when you're writing about that that you do have to just tell it for what it is and I, I think it's pretty clear what's going on there.
0: It's really bizarre I think I, and you know that the, the numbers, the sheer volume of this stuff is just astonishing.
1: Right you know I mean when you're talking about tens of millions of sharks that are being killed just to, to supply this dish which has just become kind of customary and wrote that you can't have a wedding banquet and not serve it or if you have an important business meal it needs to be on the menu i mean it's this thing that in many ways there are people who are doing it just automatically because it's something that they think the people will be disappointed if they don't serve but you know there's very little attention being paid for to what kind of toll it's taking worldwide
0: well, then all we need to do is get those people who can grow the little mouse ears on the mouse's back and then grow shark fins on, you know, a mouse's back. It can't be that hard.
1: Exactly. <laughs> if they could just come up with some engineering design. And what I think is so interesting is I raised when I was there in Hong Kong, and I, I said to folks, I, you know, even to environmentalists, I said, well, have people ever thought about using, you know, fake fake shark fin noodles? Would that work? And people looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, you know, California rolls, I like the real crap, but there are definitely a lot of people who are willing to Fake crab, you know, fake crab if, if, if it comes to it. But for some reason, that idea didn't sell.
0: Now, uh, but that's not the only... Uh Product that we get out of sharks. So you talk about uh, squalene. Tell what the heck is squalene? Where where did it come? Where did it come from? Where was it going? And I think it's gone now, isn't it? it
1: it's it's pretty much gone. But so squalene is is basically a beauty product which comes from the liver oil uh, that comes from sharks. And you know basically ponds and you know a number of different merchandisers used this and and said you know it was fantastic for your skin and things like that. And what's interesting is there was particularly one advocacy group called Oceana, which is which is global but although they have uh, a significant presence in the United States and they launched a relentless campaign and said you don't need to get squalene from from sharks you're you know targeting these vulnerable creatures and they basically managed to embarrass all these producers uh, to jettison squalene so it's not something that you really would see in in a lot of products nowadays.
0: Now one of the things that interested me is you know I'm come from a family that used to go out f- recreationally fishing. We go out in the bay every weekend and you know, fishing is a good thing because it's it's nice activity because you look like you're doing something when you're actually doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but you say that recreational fishing is actually has a significant impact on shark population.
1: Yeah, I think one thing that it's important for, for people to understand is sharks are more vulnerable than a lot of other fish because it both takes them a long time to mature sexually and then they don't produce that many offspring. So it's really interesting is that you can see that you know in certain populations even a relatively small catch can have a real impact particularly if you're talking about for example pregnant female sharks who often are coming in closer to the coasts, uh, you know when they're when they're pregnant and so and when they're getting ready to give birth and so even while you might think that it's not going to have that much of an impact the fact that first of all so many people are going out fishing and the fact that just by virtue of their biology sharks are more vulnerable it's a problem
0: and you know, we you say that the white tip shark—is it that used to be one of the most populous fish in the in the ocean—is now on the verge of extinction?
1: Yeah, it's 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 diminished by more than something like ninety eight percent compared to its historic level. So it's, it's stunning, and the fact that it's in the sea and that we can't see it is one of the reasons why people might not recognize that it's dropped to such low levels.
0: Now, uh, what can people do uh, who are out there right now to like? help sharks keep sharks alive.
1: Well, one of the really interesting things that's happening right here in California is that California is about to consider whether to ban shark fin imports, which is a very significant issue because you have two of the largest Asian markets outside of Asia are are, are here in California. And so there's a bill that's passed the assembly and it's pending right now in the state Senate and could come up certainly for a significant vote, uh, you know, just in the next few days. So uh, that's one of the most local connections right now to sharks. And then there, of course, there, there are real debate globally about what we should do internationally and so and there are a number of, of groups that focus on what's happening with sharks right now
0: i've been speaking with juliet eilperin her new book is demon fish travels through the hidden worlds of sharks she's going to be appearing at bookshop santa cruz tomorrow night at seven thirty, and you can see her hear her read from her book talk to her and get a signed copy thank you for joining me juliet
1: thanks so much it's been a pleasure